Well, welcome back everyone to Whistling Dixie. We have been on a short hiatus here of battling the forces of censorship and slander. And those who represent themselves as being totally anti-Christian. But, let's not, let's not worry about that. Let's move right along to others, subjects that we have. And one of the things I really wanted to delve into today, and, I, uh, and that is the theory of reconstruction. And to look at all of the various levels of that. And we will obviously have to get into a opposition of those who claim that it was a wonderful period in American history and that uh, too bad uh, that, you know, it had to end because the great hero Abraham Lincoln and the great federal generals, Sherman, Useless Grant, all of the others, especially many of whom were Marxists. And we are to be taught in today's world by certain individuals who were Probably my exposure of one of them may have been the reason for all of the slander and attacks and the censorship of Whistling Dixie because we are diametrically opposed to the viewpoints of the person who states those things while authoring a book titled Jews Are the Problem. But anyway... Let's move right into this Reconstruction thing, and let's stop and take a, an objective viewpoint. And that is that the South, the people of the South and the people of the North were very different. It was apparent very early on when you look at the things that were happening. I mean, if we look at the Jay Gardaki Treaty, where they tried to isolate the, the merchants of the North, tried to isolate the South and to sign a treaty with Spain so that these people of the South and of the West at that time, you know, which was Kentucky and uh, Tennessee and, of course, Arkansas and other areas, but it was brought out that they couldn't access the Mississippi River. There was a treaty to be signed with Spain that would prohibit the South from using the Mississippi River. Well, this happens before the Constitution, so it's obviously a series of mistrust. As a matter of fact, there is a pretty good uh, evidence out there that there were elements in the South, especially in uh, Tennessee and in that area, there were elements in the South that were actually looking to become a part of Spain to provide them with access to the Mississippi River. And this, again, was a move by those New England Yankees to stop or to pro only profit from the South and to prevent them from actually shipping their goods on their own without using the southern ports and shipping enterprises. So that was an obvious move. And, of course, we know that during the Constitutional Convention, we ended up with a group of people who were all about commerce in Philadelphia, and they were all set to do whatever they thought was necessary to form a union, and they needed the South to agree to their consolidated government. They couldn't have states outside prospering using, you know, freedom or using just their state constitutions to uh, prosper and their people to prosper. And the central idea of a centralized government could not allow that. And two prominent people uh, at the Constitutional Convention, Rufus King, who was a delegate from the state of Massachusetts, 
but ended up in the first Congress being a senator from the state of New York. Uh, he was very much pro-federalist, pro-central government. The one gentleman that is kind of hard to figure out was uh, Oliver Ellsworth. Uh, Oliver Ellsworth uh, was uh, pro-states' rights, and he didn't want the term national used in, in as a form of government. He opposed that. But then somewhere he did the magic switch, and one would uh, wonder what actually happened because he became a staunch Federalist himself and a senator from Massachusetts. So, but how do we know that after the Constitution was already going was that uh, there were actually Federalists who proposed a split and said that the North and the South will never get along together. They're just too different. And, you know, one of the things I think we need to think about is what were those differences? What were the differences? Was there a difference in education? Was there a difference in religion? Was there a difference in political philosophy? Was this the difference that was going to create, you know, uh, 70-some years down the road, a massive war? Or was that war, in effect, planned? Was that war a PSYOP? Well, that's something we'll have to get into. But let's, uh, you know, we're, uh, the, the government is really takes effect 1789. Five years later, because of the irresponsible actions of the Secretary of Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, and George Washington's willingness to acquiesce to everything Hamilton did, regardless of whether members of his cabinet told him that it was, in fact, unconstitutional, uh, the good old President Washington didn't seem to care, because most important to him was seemed to be appeasing Alexander Hamilton. So was Alexander Hamilton actually running the government? There is considerable evidence that is true, especially if we consider a letter from Thomas Jefferson to George Washington citing the problems that he is seeing. But anyway, that's that's a subject probably for another program, and we'll certainly get into that. But right now we want to talk about this. Did these two members of the Federalist Party see a serious problem? Well, as I said, 1794 is here. We've had five years of Hamilton's egregious banking system. Inflation is up. Uh, the national debt is going up. And so there is a problem. And no one expressed that problem better than John Taylor of Caroline, who was a senator, an appointed senator, senator I'm sorry, to take the place of Richard Henry Lee, who had resigned. So, uh, John Taylor of Caroline makes a speech on the floor of the Senate deploring the debt and how they have to get out from under this debt. There has to be some kind of moves made. And he actually states on the floor of the Senate that he is resigning his position in the Senate to go home to Virginia to fight against this debt. Well, the... Federalists are in a panic because about this time, the Anti-Federalists have taken over pretty much the government, the legislature of the state of South Carolina. Well, at that time, the legislatures appointed the senators. And the Federalists in New England were extremely worried about the possibility of the Anti-Federalists becoming dominant in the central government. And they knew they couldn't allow that to happen because the states in the South were to be used as a tax base. And they knew that. That's why they brought them in. That's why they agreed to the trade-off between uh, shipping, commerce, and slavery. And especially considering that at that time, the slave ships uh, of America were primarily operating out of Rhode Island, which is certainly not in the South. But we had this problem, and again, I believe it is in an endemic problem, and, I, and it still exists today. And that is the fact of the spirit of those people of the South and their origins. We have to remember that a lot of people escaped England and came to America for a new start. Well, then suddenly when 
King George becomes dominant in 1765 and becomes dominant and starts forcing taxes and everything else, these people who had left, who had migrated down the Appalachian Mountain and Allegheny Mountains, these people who had left to get away from that mindset of that New England Yankee. And they had moved down and they wanted to be independent. They wanted to be free. And so here's where we are. That is what happened. And so at after uh, John Taylor of Caroline, pardon, pardon my stuttering, after John Taylor of Caroline's presentation on the floor of the Senate and his statement that he was leaving, they were going to do something, and then the fear of the Federalist brought about something that was quite unusual. And that was the fact that after his speech, we end up with John Taylor of Caroline being invited into a conference room by Rufus King. And he's invited in, and Rufus King says to him, well, you know, Here's something you need to think about. Uh, We are never, ever going to get along, the North and the South. And we probably should go ahead and do that split now. Now, folks, this is five years into the convention. I mean, five years into the government under the Constitution. My bad. So, all of a sudden, the Yankees want to do the split. The Federalists want to split the country because they are afraid of the Anti-Federalists gaining power in the government that they had created in Philadelphia, a government that did not embrace states' rights, a government that was one central command. It was a, it was a monopoly of government, or we might as well call it a monarchy. And so they knew that If the Anti-Federalists begin to obtain power, they were going to be in serious trouble with all of their banking and taxing schemes. Also of interest is the fact that uh, John Taylor of Caroline had made a uh, bitter speech in May of 1794, right before this event happened, advocating a suspension of the payment of British debts. In other words, John Taylor of Caroline had begun to figure out this connection between Alexander Hamilton and the Bank of the United States and this debt deal being in league or in conjunction with England and King George. So he had said, okay, well, let's just quit paying these British debts. And uh, then one month before Congress adjourned, John Taylor of Caroline expressed his intention of resigning from the Senate, as I said before, and he would be free to use its full extent of his influence among the people of Virginia, which was quite extensive, to actually work towards these efforts opposing the Federalist debt system and their banking system. So, Rufus King invites John Taylor of Caroline into one of the committee rooms of the Senate where they could converse without interruption, he said, and stating he wished to confer with him seriously and candidly upon a very important subject. So when they were alone, he opened the conversation by saying it was utterly impossible that the Union could continue, that the South and East never agreed on anything, and that the former meaning the South, clogged and counteracted every operation of the central government. And then he went into detail saying that when the two Federalist senators from South Carolina, Ralph Izzard and William Smith, would be replaced by anti-Federalists, the Southern interest would prevail in Congress, and the East would never submit to Southern brand of politics. Under the circumstances, a dissolution of the Union by mutual consent was preferable to a forced dissolution. Hmm. So, and then at this point in the conversation, Oliver Ellsworth enters the room. Apparently by accident, but uh, I don't think that's, uh, (laughs) I think it was intended from the beginning because even John Taylor of Caroline thought it was prearranged and said so in his letter to 
James Madison outlining this entire event. King, however, declared he had not mentioned the subject to Ellsworth before. He repeated what he had been saying, and Ellsworth agreed with him. In the conversation which followed, Rufus King was the chief spokesman, but Ellsworth occasionally joined in to express his concurrence with the beliefs of Senator King. King also said that a friendly arrangement could be made by members of the Senate and the House to prepare the outlines of this separation. He said he himself was indifferent as to the line of division from the Potomac to the Hudson. Now, John Taylor of Caroline replied, commending friendly and cool discussion of great political subjects, but he also said he was highly approved of supporting the Union. What? Yes. Who is supporting dissolution and who is supporting supporting the Union in 1794? He said if he was mistaken, an amicable separation was certainly preferable to a hostile one. But before they reached that point, he thought an effort should be made to unite the two parties now distracting the government. He said that the public debt was the main cause of dissension because the Federalists were suspected of a determination to use it as a political machine instead of paying it. Wow. (laughs) I wonder what they would say if they could see it today. Now, the Anti-Federalists were suspected of an intention to destroy the debt. In other words, they were bad because they wanted to pay it off and get rid of it. Now, suppose the parties tried to remove those mutual suspicions. Might not the Union then receive a, a new beginning? Suppose the Army were decreased and the taxes now going to support it were applied to paying the debt. Suppose a land office were opened and the proceeds of the sales of land put to paying off the debt. Would not such a course play well with the people? But to this, King and Ellsworth would not agree. He said there were several other, being King, said there were several other essential differences between the extremities of the Union beside the debt. He said, the North and the South have never thought alike and never would think alike. He had been watching James Madison's conduct. Uh, This is one of Madison's first flip-flops when he started attacking the Federalists, and he was a friend of John Taylor of Caroline. And he said he was convinced that Madison had some deep and mischievous design. Though he would be willing to decrease the army in the course of another year, he was not willing to open a land office and saw no remedy for existing evils but a dissolution of the Union. Now, Taylor wanted to know, and he said, Senator King, uh, what makes you suspect James Madison? And what points he wished for the South to concede? But Rufus King would not enter into any explanations, but simply reiterated that a dissolution of the Union was the only cure for the present irreconcilable political dissensions. Here the conversation closed. But it did make a profound impression upon John Taylor of Caroline, and he was thoroughly convinced that a design to break up the Union was being formed or was in the embryonic stages. He declared that the earnest faces of King and Ellsworth, as he saw them, disclosed their serious intentions. This he said in the letter to Madison. And this is in the National Archives, folks. He thought they had approached him on the subject because they knew he had been opposed to the Constitution initially, and therefore supposed he was secretly an enemy to the Union, and would infuse disunion views among the Anti-Federalists of Virginia. He thought, he being uh, John Taylor of Caroline, that they had motives even deeper than they disclosed, and that a British interest was behind it all. So much was John Taylor impressed that two days after this conversation occurred, he made a confidential memorandum of it, 
which he sent to James Madison. At a later period, Madison himself would add to the words on the memorandum, and he said in that, and I quote, the language of K and E, probably in terrorum, T-E-R-R-O-R-E-M, unquote. So here we have a proposal to split the country. Now, we have to ask ourselves, because it's been said by so many people, that the founders thought they were creating a perpetual union. Well, Rufus King and Oliver Ellsworth were both there at the Constitutional Convention. They both signed the Constitution. So, if they were proposing a split in 1794, did they, as founders, believe that secession was unconstitutional? Did they believe that secession was criminal? Did they believe that to secede from the Union made one a traitor? Now, I think it's also important that we take a look at uh, the fact that later, a few years later, well, over a decade, that these two gentlemen, Oliver Ellsworth and Rufus King, stood in close cooperation with two other Federalists. One was George Cabot of the Essex Junto, chairman of the Hartford Convention in 1814, and Caleb Strong, who, as governor of Massachusetts in 1812, resisted the order of President Madison, calling Massachusetts troops into the field in the time of war. So these people wanted disunion too. So disunion is not a southern thing at birth. Disunion belongs to the Federalists. So having established that, let's move into a couple of things that are very, very, very troubling to me. And that is the efforts of some to convince people that the Reconstruction was a good thing and that Reconstruction was the answer. Well, here, let's ask the question that we asked about secession. Was Reconstruction constitutional? Ah, that's going to be a subject for discussion. So, to uh, best understand this Reconstruction idea, it would probably behoove us to go back to the end of the war, the Second War for Independence, and look at what was actually transpiring during that time frame. Well, the legally reconstituted Southern states were busy ratifying the anti-slavery 13th Amendment. The Republican-dominated Congress refused to seat Southern representatives and senators. This allowed the remaining Congress to propose the 14th Amendment, consistent with Article 5's requirement of a two-thirds majority for sending a proposed amendment to the states. So you see the manipulation here? Does anyone believe that the southern states would have consented to this 14th Amendment? No. So what do you do to make sure you get what you want through the political system, regardless of any damn words written on parchment? That, that is such a joke, as if that has ever restrained government in the least iota is one of the greatest jokes in American history. So, anyway, there we have it, that they did that. And then what else did they do? They said that here, no, not what they said or did. I think we need to cover this first, that regardless of these points, the Congress itself was violating 
Article 4 of the Constitution that states, and I quote, No state without its consent shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. So regardless of the fact that the 14th Amendment was never properly ratified, the fact of it is, is that it was illegal from the beginning. Its creation was an illegal act. Well, though the northern states quickly ratified the 14th Amendment, it was decisively rejected by the southern and border states, which failed to secure the three-quarters of the states necessary for the ratification under Article 5. Well, now, this made the radical Marxist Republicans, uh, and that is true, the Republican Party has was created by Marxist and has always been Marxist, but that's... Uh, Another argument for another day. But these radical Republicans responded with the Reconstruction Act of 1867. Now here is another act that was written unconstitutionally because the South and their representatives were not a part of this. Now you might, might say, well, they never were. Well, yes, they were. They were accepted when they ratified the 13th Amendment. Then the problems began. But the Reconstruction Act of 1867, totally unconstitutional, expelled the southern states from the Union and placed them under martial law. The war's over. So the Reconstruction, taking away the people's whatever they thought their rights were under the Constitution and putting them under a military dictatorship is a good thing? Uh, I wonder how the people would accept that today. But to end this military rule, the southern states were required not only to ratify the 14th Amendment, but to write new state constitutions which were acceptable to the federal government. Imagine that. You have to write a constitution that is acceptable to those who rule over you. So much for that, uh, <laughs> that we the people BS, right? So, here is, well, let's look at what uh, Senator James Doolittle from Wisconsin had to say about this. In the U.S. Senate, in the National Archives, and here it is, and I quote, The people of the South have rejected the Constitutional Amendment, meaning the 14th, and therefore, we will march upon them and force them to adopt it at the point of the bayonet, unquote. Is that consent of the governed, that mystical idea, or is that coercion? Well, we got to give old President Andrew Johnson credit here, folks. Credit where credit is due. Because Andrew Johnson said that the Reconstruction Act was absolute despotism and a bill of attainder against nine million people. In his veto message, President Johnson stated that, and I quote, such a power has never been wielded by any monarch in England for more than 500 years, unquote. Wow. Wow. So, <laughs> at that point, President Johnson asked, and I quote, Have we the power to establish and carry into execution a measure like this? And then he answered his own question. And he said, Certainly not. If we derive our authority from the Constitution, and if we are bound by the limitations which it imposes. Unquote. Well, we all know that this uh, Marxist Republican Congress overrode Johnson's veto and, and enacted statutes that shrank the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction and shrank the Supreme Court itself to protect their unconstitutional maneuvers. Now, this was done just in case that judicial branch got any funny ideas of its own about adhering to the Constitution. 
Well, with the boot of oppression firmly on its neck, the South ratified the 14th Amendment under compulsion, under threat, under threat of violence. But not before New Jersey and Ohio, who suddenly realized this Republican Marxist tyranny, they rescinded their previous ratifications of the amendment. Even with the fictional consent of the southern states, the Republican Marxist Congress had to have New Jersey and Ohio to put the amendment over the top. No matter about the Constitution or anything else, these Marxists declared the amendment valid. Declared valid. And to use the phrase of many, it passed into law. Well, you know, it, it's just absolutely incredible that this was done and that the states were put into a period of living under martial law. And to make this such a part of Reconstruction, that's the beginning of Reconstruction. And I've got someone who uh, has proclaimed the fact that the uh, white race should be genocided publicly on a website, and I am suddenly to believe this man's thoughts masked by a blanket condemnation of the Jews, and I'm certainly not absolving any of that, but using that as his acceptance, as his camouflage, he has said that Reconstruction was the greatest thing that ever happened. And that the greatest president was Lincoln. And that how wonderful were the personages of Ulysses Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman. Now let's not forget that William Tecumseh Sherman wrote to his wife and said that it was not his plan to eliminate just the Confederate Army. He wanted to kill all of the people of the South. And he set about doing it, starting with his march to the sea. And with then the other instruments that was conducted in the Shenandoah Valley at the same time, eliminating the source of food for everyone. This is the kind of person that is a hero. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. And Reconstruction was the great thing to do. To take a free people, put them under military dictatorship, to uh, mess with their elections. But then the most absolutely, I think, the part that we miss so many times is how Reconstruction went about changing the churches and the schools in the South. Why did they feel like they had to get that done. First, we will kind of jump into the churches, how they went about what they did with the churches. So, here it comes. Let's take an in-depth look. First, though, I think it is absolutely vital that we kind of lay some foundation here so that uh, everyone will understand what we're dealing with. And what we're dealing with is the fact that uh, in the build-up to that war between the states, that prior to that, we ended up with an awful lot of Marxists migrating out of Europe to America after the revolution in 1848 in Europe. And they came to America, and many of the Marxists bought newspapers and one of those new and didn't buy this newspaper in per se, but the largest newspaper in America, the largest circulation on the planet was the New York Tribune, which was owned by, you know, Horace Greeley and his 
publisher was Charles A. Dana, editor Charles A. Dana. Charles A. Dana was a close personal friend of Marx in England. And then Charles A. Dana would become Abraham Lincoln's assistant secretary of war in the latter part of uh, 1862, I believe it was. And there are there is considerable evidence that uh, Charles A. Dana directed the military uh, again, a direct connection to Karl Marx. And isn't this about the time that uh, the slaughters really began in the South? Once Charles A. Dana, the, the slaughters of innocent civilians, the slaughters of livestock, the, the slaughters of uh, even blacks and the rapes of black women that happened under the Lincoln administration including the rape of Athens, Alabama, which is a classic story, which was conducted by another one of these Marxists, Turgayevich, who had uh, changed his name. Uh, so we have these things happening. There are several communist Marxist generals. But the thing that is so critical that we must absolutely look at is the fact that this Marxist element had penetrated the news media, had penetrated churches, and had penetrated schools. The churches had become Antichrist. Not the Antichrist, but Antichrist. In many respects, the Transcendentalists, the Unitarians. The schools had changed from a classical form of education to a liberal arts form of education. And yet, these things hadn't happened in the South. The South was still clinging to their traditions. Very importantly is that the churches of the North became the uh, operation centers for the abolitionist movement. And it is certainly my belief was that these people cared nothing for the black man or the black race but this was part of the psyop at that period of time the psyop to bring on the civil war and so that they could profit so that they could create a huge debt which would feed the banking system and not only that, but so that the South could be raped of their natural resources and their people. Blacks didn't matter to these people. It was a great front. It was the camouflage. And why do we have a camouflage? So we can make people think it's something that it's not. This is part of a PSYOP. I mean, just look at the uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, the circulation of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Absolutely impossible during that time frame to have sold that many copies. And it did, it was totally fictional. But in the North, they believed it. In the South, they saw what was happening. They were being set up. And so then we have the tension begin. And as I said before, the schools went from a classical education of the people to a liberal arts education. In 1860, at the College of Charleston, South Carolina, 1860, the valedictorian had to be conversant, or the, the school, the entire school, had to be conversant in Greek and Latin and the classics at a very minimum. And the valedictorian had to give their presentation at graduation in Latin. So these things were part of had to, what had to be destroyed by this wonderful Union Army. Well, there we go, uh, my theme song. So, we know what the Northerners were being taught in their churches, and uh, or do we? Do we truly 
understand exactly what was happening? Perhaps not. But we do know that the transcendentalists, the Unitarians, were controlling the churches, and the churches were being attended by the abolitionists. But okay, what was going on with in your southern church? Both blacks and whites. Blacks had their own churches. Oh, imagine that. But uh, it, there is no doubt that the southerner, through their churches, did not have the same worldview of their northern counterpart. Because the southerner was into the solid preaching and was extremely doubtful about the goodness of human nature. Your southerner believed in the sovereignty of God and the sinfulness and depravity of man. He knew enough of man's fallen nature to realize that secular political solutions would not solve the problems of that day or of any other day for that matter. Southern Christians sat up and took notice when Northern Unitarian and Transcendentalist Theodore Parker echoed the statements of many of his own brethren that every man was his own Christ and that true faith was independent of biblical revelation. As if that wasn't bad enough, Southern Christians reeled in shock when Unitarian minister Ralph Waldo Emerson stated that when abolitionist terrorist John Brown was hanged, he would, and I quote, make the gallows as the cross, unquote. The rank apostasy of these statements from the North made most astute Southerners aware that they were up against more than a political adversary. They were ultimately up against a force that sought to gut their Christian faith as it had gutted the Christian faith in the northern states decades earlier, especially starting in 1848 with the influx of the Marxists into northern culture. I would like to note at this point that several of my quotes come from Al Benson, uh, who was a co-author of a book titled uh, Lincoln Marxist. I believe was the title, something of that, along with one of the Kennedy brothers. I can't remember which one right now. But anyway, uh, se several of the uh, things that I will quote actually come from the work of Al Benson, and I certainly wanted to give him credit. But uh, historian Francis Butler Simpkins, in a, his uh, book called A History of the South, noted many of the problems between the churches that surfaced after our second war of independence and was brought about <laughs> yeah imagine that was brought about by the influx of these marxist unitarian preachers into the south when under reconstruction they took over the churches and the schools and so uh, mr simpkins noted that many of the problems surfaced after the war of, of this war of civil war was over and that shameful pogrom called reconstruction had begun the various southern denominations ended up having many of the same problems that were that pardon me that were evident in the political realm you had a lot of northern preachers that came south after the war the attitude of northern churchmen that they were coming south to eradicate the bar bar barbarism, I'm sorry, and the theological darkness of that region did not sit too well with the southern folks. Imagine that. Author Simpkins noted that, and I quote, an Alabamian expressed the opinion of most white southerners that perhaps the greatest liars and most malignant slanderers that the north has spewed out upon the south since the close of the war are the reverend blackguards that have been sent among us as ministers of religion, unquote. At this point, I would like to make sure that you folks are totally understandable 
that the church is split in Reconstruction in the South. That's why we have Southern Baptists and Northern Baptists. Never forget a quote I heard when I was a young man living in the Deep South. The difference between a Northern Baptist and a Southern Baptist is that the Northern Baptist says there ain't no hell, and the Southern Baptist says, well, the hell they ain't. Now, that's a microcosm, but it's accurate. So that is what was happening during Reconstruction. Now, uh, Simpkins, Arthur Simpkins noted that the tendency toward reunion among the Presbyterians was countered by northern insolence. Thereafter, the southern Presbyterians got together to form a stronger southern church. Same situation with the southern Methodists and the southern Baptists. You know, folks, we got to look at it square in the mouth. The southerners were right. These attitudes among northern churchmen displayed the effect that apostasy had in the northern churches for decades since the Marxists had taken them over. There was this Yankee determination to dominate, to force everyone to yield to their position as the only right position, a sort of be reasonable and do it my way attitude. You could also note that the parallel of this mindset among the New England Unitarians who were going to make sure all the children in their states were educated via the compulsory education laws, uh, let me say the 10th plank of the Communist Manifesto here, which is mandated government education. In other words, send your child to be thoroughly and completely indoctrinated in Marxist principles. This began 150 years ago, and you wonder why your kid may be leaning, or your parents, or even your grandparents are left-leaning individuals. But historian R. Thompson, Arthur R. Thompson, I'm sorry, observed that northern transcendentalism, yeah, easy for me to say, was a transition from Christ to Antichrist. Imagine that. Given the apostasy in the northern church, you have to figure that a goodly number of those treacherous missionaries who came south during Reconstruction were in fact transcendentalists. And transcendentalism was influenced by Illuminism. So here we have an effort, an obvious effort. Now let's not forget that in the southern churches under Reconstruction, little children and adults were forced to pledge allegiance to the government. Thus, we have the you know, Pledge of Allegiance, which came about shortly afterwards. You pledge allegiance to government. You don't pledge allegiance to God. That was part of the entire effort here of Reconstruction, which we are attempting to illustrate is totally wrong and destroyed in many ways the principles of the southern person. The things they held dear, their education, their classical education, their teachings in the church system. Yes, folks, even the black church split over this. When these transcendentalists came south and Unitarians came south and started in the black churches and started teaching their antichrist religion, we had a split among the black churches. We had a split from the AME to the CME. Check it out. It's part of our history. It's something that we all should know and understand. Yes, amazing is it not that, uh, you know, all of the things that happened during Reconstruction are somehow laid at the feet of the Southerner, the person in the South who was involved in all of these acts of violence and all of these other things, yet there is no mention of the fact that the North was completely in charge, that their leaders, their 
former generals were placed in command of a military dictatorship of states. Two states. Each one of them had two states. Five of them had two states. They couldn't include Tennessee because Tennessee was the home of the president at the time, Andrew Johnson. So it was going to be kind of tough to kick out a state which was the home state of the president of the United States at the time. So they had to just use the 10 southern states. And they controlled the elections. They controlled the military. Only the, only the northern military could count the votes in an election. So you can imagine how that might turn out, right? Kind of like 2020 with the same perspective in place. But yet we have the people today who are saying what a wonderful thing Reconstruction was. And they talk about the crimes that were committed against the black man and the black race. But they don't mention the crimes that were committed by these militia units which were all black against the white citizen of the South, including documented evidence of rapes and other atrocious acts against the people of the South. And then, of course, you can only criticize the people of the South for striking back. That is the intended result. You push them to a point to where they can't take it anymore, and then you condemn them for standing up for what is right in their world. The horrors of Reconstruction, the reinstitution of the Southern schools under the 10th plank of the Communist Manifesto, the reinstitution of the apostasy of the Unitarian and totalitarian faith upon the people of the South. And even the blacks resisted in their churches to form the CME as opposed to the AME. So here we have now people who are praising Reconstruction and what a fantastic thing Reconstruction was. The perpetuity of the lie and how that is pushed forward by those who, under the false pretense of pushing something you might believe in, like a hatred of the Jews, and then they openly state how wonderful Lincoln was. And, you know, what really bothers me is these people who are so historically challenged that they talk about the wonders of Lincoln and the Northern Army, especially the black, black people. And then they fail to understand that almost one quarter of the black population of the South died while under the control of the Union Army from 1862 to 1865. There's good evidence out there that maybe that number might even approach a million people. A million blacks died while under the control of the Union Army. But yet, we can't mention that. We can't talk about that. Or we don't. It's not mentioned, but it is well documented. I mean, we can even go back to a gentleman who was, gosh, I'm trying to think of his name right now, but he was the Chief Justice of the Mississippi Supreme Court prior to the war. And after the war, he was named the Reconstruction Governor of the state of Mississippi. And in an address to the U.S. Congress, he mentions the fact that that, you know, 25%, which would be a million, of the black race disappeared during the war. Where did they go? Did they do a beam me up, Scotty? 
or were they the victims of what has been referred to in the past as contraband camps? Do a study of contraband camps. Helena, Arkansas is a good one to start with, and then there's the contraband camps throughout Tennessee, and especially one in Mississippi that is known as the Devil's Punch Bowl. Now, I want these people who advocate the wonderful nature of Abraham Lincoln and his Marxist government, and especially the Marxist Reconstruction government, about what a wonderful thing that was. How can you accept the government that has just murdered 25% or let die 25% of your entire race in this country in the South? How can you say that's a good thing? How can you accept that? It's just beyond my comprehension. I certainly cannot accept that. It's just wrong. Well, before I jump back into the atrocities of Reconstruction, I would just like to let everyone know that uh, moving forward with Whistling Dixie, uh, my programs are not going to go into the two-hour range. I'm going to try to keep them more into the one-hour maybe one hour plus range so that uh, we can uh, be a little bit more concise in the delivery of our information in the future on this because I think this is so critical, especially now. And especially before we get into, again, uh, the takeover of the South during Reconstruction not only economically, but, you know, spiritually and scholastically. Now, there's a gentleman by the name of Frank Connor who wrote a book called The South Under Siege, 1830-2000. to 2000. Now, he has drawn a great conclusion, in my opinion. And he has said that, and I quote, the key to understanding the current predicament in the South lies in grasping the very nature of the 19th century abolition movement as it was shaped by the American transcendentalist. They manipulated that movement for the purposes of waging an ideological war against the Christian South. The war of liberal North against conservative South began in the 1830s and continues unabated even till now with the destruction of Confederate monuments and actually grave digging up people from graves to sponsor just such a radical motive of these people. Well, the cultural and religious war against the South is not over by any stretch of the imagination, not until every Confederate monument is removed, not until all of our ancestors are denigrated as traitors. And the people who performed the act themselves are now considered to be heroes and icons of our history. Well, the cultural and religious war against the South is, again, in no way over. The continued effects, uh, attacks on everything Southern is proof positive. But we have to ask ourselves, why did the Transcendentalists do what they did? Were there other influences at work that propelled them to seek the goals they sought? Well, we have previously mentioned the... Uh, sermons of the Unitarian Theodore Parker, and he echoed the socialists of Europe in the 1840s. Oh, imagine that. So that goes back to prove what I have alleged from the beginning, that this all originated with the influx of the Marxists into America, especially into the northern parts of America, in the 1848 area. Uh of course, we look at uh, historian Arthur R. Thompson, 
and his book, uh, and I have some issues with his book, but he nailed some pretty good stuff. And the title of his book is To the Victor Go the Myths and the Monuments. And he said that in that book that Theodore Parker's supporters, and I quote, formed a congregation in Boston and installed him as its minister. Among his flock were, now pay close attention to the names here, who attended his church, Louisa May Alcott, William Lord Garrison, Julia Ward Howe, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Samuel Gridley Howe, and William C. Neal. Depending on the source, uh, whichever one you choose to read, it is claimed his congregation grew to somewhere from two to over three thousand people. One large congregation of alleged Christians who had a pastor who did not believe in Christ. Imagine that. Many ministers of the Unitarian variety simply use the freedom of their office and responsibility to be free enough to work for abject Marxism and ultimately what is embraced by Marxism, atheism, by one path or another. No doubt, by now, you had to recognize some of the names I mentioned above. The socialist luminaries in Theodore Parker's congregation. And the question goes, and especially again from Al Benson, how many of you had to read Little Women in school? They didn't tell you it was written by a Unitarian apostate, did they? Christians were not supposed to know that or that the battle hymn of the Republic that appears in way too many Christian hymnals was written by a Unitarian apostate. Christians should know this kind of thing, but mostly they are totally ignorant of it. And you know what? They get real angry when you bring that out. I know I have experienced it for quite some time. So people... Here we have, again, I want you to correlate that. And I want you to correlate that with the following. Now, my antagonist, protagonist, uh, at, uh, you know, that uh, entity known as Speak Free Radio, have said this. Now, I want you to compare this with what we have just covered about the changing of religion and how during Reconstruction that was a primary function of Reconstruction was to change the faith of the people in the South. And when we look at what the Southern Baptist Church has become now and some others in their embracing of everything socialism, It makes one wonder, how long did it take all of this to actually work? Well, as I mentioned before, let's look at what some of the primary figures at my slanderous opponent, what they have to say about the issue. Now, one John Kaminsky stated publicly on his show that the Bible is a Jewish soap opera. Okay, and then we have, uh, you know, Giuseppe, who has said and proclaimed that he is agnostic. And then I get it directly from Scorpio that Dave Gahari told him that he had no need of God. And then the gentleman who wrote the book, and I use that term very loosely, the gentleman who wrote the book, who hates the Jews, but he advocates everything that Abraham Lincoln did, without recognizing that Abraham Lincoln was owned and controlled by the Marxist Jews. Oh, okay, well, let's forget that. But what did he say in a private conversation with my friend Dave Scorpio? He said that he believes in African mysticism as his spiritual force and not Christ. So people, I'm going to let you decide. What is the basis of the belief that 
reconstruction is great. Abraham Lincoln was great. The Marxist-controlled government of Abraham Lincoln was great. But yet, it's all about the Jew. Camouflage. I give you something to hold on to that you will want to believe so that I can produce for you a, an abundance of lies which you will accept strictly because you agreed with my premise. Well, folks, we're an hour and five minutes into this. I don't want to make them too much longer, but, uh, you know, I hope that you will uh, continue to listen to Whistling Dixie. We're going to try to make this a, you know, at least a weekly presentation, if not more often, but at least weekly. And so I want to thank those of you who have chosen to stand by me, regardless of the slanderous onslaught that continues. So I appreciate that. I only want to bring to you the truths of history. That is my only agenda. So I want to thank all of you for taking the time today to listen to what I had to say here at Whistling Dixie. And I want you folks to know that there is a great group of folks up there in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina in a business called the Dixie Republic. And you can look it up on DixieRepublic.com. And if you can support these people in any way, please do so. They are standing for the truths of history. And so with that, I will bid you adieu for today and look forward to seeing you again on Whistling Dixie. Thank you. <music>